Hey, everybody. How are you doing today? This is Adam Beckstead with Welkin Equity. I am a real estate investor from Indiana. If you're looking to learn about real estate investing, listen to my good friend Sam Newell's podcast, Recession Proof Real Estate Investing. Welcome to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm Sam Newell, your host, and it is my goal to educate you on how to make profitable, low-risk real estate investments that will cash flow through any economy. I interview the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they have learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become my goal to help others invest for double-digit returns, but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession-proof. I appreciate you being on here. I'm excited to hear what you have to say, but you've, you've done a lot of cool stuff in the last year, raising money, working on deals, but you know, you did, you had an auto body shop before that. As far as I know, you've been investing for quite a while, but tell me about like 15 year old high school, Adam, were you thinking about being a massive syndicator and were you thinking about owning an auto body shop? Were you thinking about having passive income through real estate or what were you thinking about? I was not thinking about real estate. You know, I grew up in real estate. We, when I was younger, we would flip houses. We'd do live-in flips. And, you know, my my parents were fixing flippers. I, I mean, they they did that throughout their younger career on top of owning a business. And, you know, we would do that on the weekends and stuff. So it was awesome that I grew up around it, but I never had the yearning when I was younger to be like, oh, well, this is what I want to do. Because even though my parents taught me to be in it, mm-hmm. we never really sat down and said, well, here's the financials and here's why we do it. You know, it was just something that we did. Mm-hmm. So, and that's something that I really want to kind of change for my kids and kind of show them, hey, this is why I do this. And if I can do it and structure it like this, I don't have to have this W-2 job. Right. So I, I'm hoping that I can maybe lay a few more blocks down for my kids so that they can put the connections together. But actually out of school, we started a truck accessory business on top of our auto body business that we had. So I essentially right from school, I was an entrepreneur starting this business, you know, from, from accounting to installing truck accessories Wow! and slowly (laughs) transitioned from that into the auto body industry. And we, I mean, we just saw the writing on the wall, a lot of online shopping going on. And that industry has really kind of been wrecked from online shopping. Uh, You know, I think a lot of industries are like that. Even myself, I find myself in stores. Oh, I'm going to see how much I can get that on Amazon for. It'll be shipped right to my house in two days for free. So, you know, that's, that's what I started in. And I've been lucky to be around parents that have been investors and slowly but surely it was pounded into me. And over the years of working in the businesses, you know, I kept telling myself, Hey, I'm going to get into real estate. And I tried a couple of flips. I didn't enjoy flips. They were another job. Yeah. So, yeah. So, but it finally, you know, got hit into my head enough times that when we got an offer to sell the business, as I was trying to expand the business because it was doing so well for us, I really, I, I didn't just say no. I took some time, talked to my wife, you know, talked about the pros and the cons mentally and for like family life. It was a, Hey, let's do this. And then I ran the numbers and it was a no brainer The the scalability of real estate is unreal compared to a business. I think you could square from ground floor to a couple million dollars, maybe quicker in a business if you were, if you hit it just right. And I, I think that you could do that. But once you get past that point, it's really hard to, you know, very few people are successful in taking that maybe two, $3 million business and taking it to a $30 million business. And in real estate, you, you kind of put up these processes and you work with your team and you really, it, it's a, an, it's an escalation scale. You know, it just keeps building on top of each, on top of each other. And there's no, there's no limit. So yeah. 
you just keep building in this real estate. And, you know, when I was running the numbers, even myself, I wasn't running numbers to truly how you could scale this business. And it was still a no brainer. So, I mean, that's really what got me um, kicked into real estate full time. Cool. That's awesome. And yeah, it's, I love that you, you kind of realized you didn't like flipping. Maybe I'm a slow learner because it took us a bunch of flips. I don't know. I mean, I've made a lot of money on flips. And so that's why I keep doing them. I've only done like one or a year, one every two years, but my wife and I (laughs) pacted with each other. I mean, full on packed promise, no more flips ever. We'll never do another flip. But did you pinky swear? We did. Oh man, you can't back out of that. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we have to go for the scalability, but you know, and, and I think that's where a lot of people got caught in the downturn. You know, the, this podcast is about recession-proof real estate investing. And I love that you're, you learned that early on as you wanted to scale. And, and it's probably because you're a business owner, entrepreneur, you realize the importance of that. Importance of that. But where were you in the crash? I'm curious. I was safely in, in the automotive industry. Okay. Honestly, it didn't affect us all that much, which um, was great for that industry. What what affects the automotive industry a lot is gas. So as gas prices rise up, uh, our business will contract. Mm-hmm. So, but we didn't see too much in the 0708. So I didn't feel, uh, you know, I didn't have that feeling that a lot of entrepreneurs did. Even a lot of people with W2 jobs that lost their jobs or it was just tougher for them. Luckily, we didn't have to um, deal too much with the 0708 crash. Well, that's nice. And did you own real estate during that time? I did not. My parents did, and I helped uh, manage some of that. And it, I mean, it was good. They're into like triple net commercial type of real estate. Okay. And just had successful businesses in the real estate. So there was no issue there. Nice. Okay. So when did you buy your first rental? My first rental would have been 2016, early 2016, actually. So not too long ago. Yeah, you've been in it kind of the last few years. Interesting. What'd you buy? Yeah, so I started with a single family home. A lot of people start with single family homes. Yeah. You know, selling my business. I know I wanted to get in real estate, but both you and I know there's multiple different ways to get into real estate. So we just wanted to find deals and it didn't matter whether it was single family, multifamily or office space. I didn't want to start getting into the commercial space, triple net stuff like my parents quite yet. Still kind of scares me a little bit. I don't just, I don't understand it well enough. Yeah. And I feel like I need, it's an animal that you need to respect and yeah, you really need to research it, I guess, and become proficient at it. Absolutely. So, but anyway, you know, single family, all that stuff. I just wanted to find deals. So we ended up buying single family, small multifamily and office space because we wanted to see what we liked. You know, we want, we knew we were transitioning into real estate and we just wanted to know what we liked and what we didn't like. I mean, more so what we didn't like than what we liked. And we really loved our small multifamily properties. A lot of, I've heard many people say that they don't like it. They think they get worse tenants with multifamily. I, I find I get the same tenants, whether it's single family or multifamily. Yeah. Kind of depends on what you buy, right? Absolutely. I think that it depends what you buy and where you buy it and then how you screen your tenants. So I, I mean, I don't really, I don't really live by that rule. Kind so of depends on how you manage it. And I agree. I mean, if you do a good job screening tenants, but also advertising well, making the units look nice, you can have a C-class property, but you can have some great tenants. And I kind of have the um, problem of over fixing stuff. So I'm sure many of my tenants are like, wow, this is awesome. You know, all the comps don't have, you know, aren't this nice. So I'm slowly starting to pull that back. But I don't know. I I get the feeling I, you know, I watch you online. I When we talk and stuff and I see your videos, I get the feeling you're kind of like me where it's kind of like, oh, well, these faucets only $20 more and it's Mm -hmm. that much nicer. I'm going to do that. And then you do that like 200 times during your renovation. (laughs) You end up spending a couple thousand more. So. Yeah, uh, that's something that I know I need to pull back on and set my budget from the beginning and just be better at it. We're kind of in between that for our personal flips. When it's a single family home, we go nuts. You know, we know that if we get multiple offers, 
we're going to make an extra ten to fifteen thousand dollars. And right. those little things like you're talking about, the the extra faucet, the extra X, Y, and Z that makes it look so much better, makes it look look look, look like Pinterest exploded onto the onto the property, that gets you multiple offers. So on the real estate agent side, yeah, I, I go nuts. I tell my clients to go nuts. You don't have to spend a ton of money, but you do spend an extra couple thousand and it pays off. On yeah. the rental side, I have a very specific tenant base that I want to target. I want to target people that maybe they don't need luxury, but they want it to be nice. It's my rentals don't smell. They're clean when people see them. I have backsplashes and granite countertops and I'm targeting not high end white collar, but white collar and high end blue collar. And that's the tenant base. I like, you know, I have people in there with 720, 740 credit scores or people paying six months in advance, six months rent up front. So, you know, I, I think it's not a terrible idea to upgrade the units. Mm-hmm. Maybe don't spend a crazy amount, but yeah, <laughs> I, I I think I, I don't want to be the slumlord and it sounds like you don't want to either. No, absolutely not. And I 100% agree. You know, I do those little addition, pay a little bit more for, for faucets, for some fixtures, maybe even flooring, because I know that that will attract the tenants that I want. Uh, yeah. yeah, I could obviously pay less and get a lower clientele, but I'm playing that um, in between and the deals that I've come across, I've been able to afford that stuff. And um, make a very good um, profit off of, you know, adding that stuff. You know, I I pick, same thing. I pick, I pick all of the upgrades based on who I'm targeting and I pick the location. I think that's huge. But tell me what maybe you haven't liked about the single family homes or, or whatever the opposite, whatever, whatever it is you've invested in, you haven't liked, because I think there's a lot of people just like you who want to invest, there's so many options out there. So what, what did yeah. you not like? Okay, so let me just touch base on the fix and flips. I was not good at fix and flips because I did not give it the respect that it deserved. And no matter what you do, give it respect and understand that you're going to have to do some research. You know, I went into it um, not doing my research and trusting people and just saying, oh, yeah, this is what you could sell it for. This is what you can buy it for. Here's the renovations. And I yep. just kind of looked at, oh, okay. And, and it wasn't. And, and then you put into my thing where, oh, I want to add this little bit. I want to add this little bit. And then you like the HGTV thing, you know, you pull up a floorboard and you're like, oh, these joists are going to have to be replaced. You know, the typical yep. thing. So no matter what area you want to go, you got to give it respect. So fix some flips. I, 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 know, I know you can make a killing. I mean, you're, yep. you're proof of that. It just wasn't for me. And, and I and I can fully understand that. As far as office space, office space, trying to find people into that is, and, and I've done, it's small office space. Uh-huh. And it is a different breed trying to find people to rent small office space. Mm-hmm. We talk to a ton of people, we screen a bunch of people, and they just don't commit. Yep. And and I think it's um, a nature of a small office space because I think it's the the in between someone working at home or someone working in a really nice professional, you know, it's that stepping stone. And I think a lot of people get really scared by that and it creates some issue. And we just found that compared to a place to live, it's so much harder to find a good tenant. Yeah. So I, that's why we don't want to continue on with office space. I'm actually selling off one of my offices right now. Single family home. You know, I like single family home. And I think that a really big positive that that has is you have so many options to try to sell a single family home. And I don't know if you would agree, you know, you have the the retail person, you have a, you have an investor and the retail is going to be your biggest market where you don't really have that same market when you go into even, even a duplex, right. you know, once you hit duplex or, or higher, you know, you start chiseling off and making yeah. a smaller pool of buyers. So it's an advantage in single family home. Here's the problem. Okay. So if I started and I bought, let's say I bought 60 single family homes and I have, I have high goals for myself. So I'd have to have a couple thousand single family homes, but let's just say I got to 60 and I'm like, this isn't for me. 
you know, I'm right. we're having to go all over the place. Management's going to have to go all over the place, and it's not effective. So, okay, well, let's put that into a multifamily. You know how hard it's going to be to sell sixty single-family homes for a good price. Yeah, I mean, I to well, me, it blew my mind trying to think about how I was going to scale those that single-family business. You know, on up. The big difference with single family versus multifamily is that the multifamily isn't as dependent on the economy. You know, so these single family homes, you know, my first flip I bought for 170 and during the height of the market, 2006, 2007, it sold for 330. So that's the other thing there is if you buy all those single families like you're talking about and you need to liquidate, you need some cash or you you have an opportunity to buy something else. If the timing isn't right, you have to wait longer and it's, it, it's just a more volatile market. And, and it's, it, so it's higher risk. Yeah. It, it, once you hit that, that five plus units, you really get into, you're buying a business. Sure. And since I'm, I have a business background, it makes more sense to me. You know, if you think about it, imagine going to a banker and saying, Hey, I want to buy these 60 single family homes. Mm-hmm. Compared to, hey, I want to buy this one building that's 60 units. Yep. I mean, what to what logically makes more sense to that banker in, in doing that? I think that you're going to find more bankers that would rather rent on that 160 unit compared to 60 single family homes. And maybe I'm wrong and maybe it's the simplicity in my head of it. But no, it, it just to me, it makes sense that, you know, we're we're buying businesses that banks love that agency debt loves. Right. And, I mean, that's to me, the terms that agency debt puts on these large multifamily properties speaks volumes to how secure these investments are. Yep. You know, they're offering non-recourse. They're offering 30-year amortization. They're, at, they're offering years with no, just interest. Yep. Interesting. So, yeah, this is, I mean, just imagine that. I, I mean, bankers are some of the most strict people that I think Risk anyone deals with. Yeah. So for the fact that someone's willing to loan on that on under those terms, that should let you know how secure these investments are. Yeah, that's huge. And and two more, I'd add two more points to that. They, the non-recourse means they don't care about as much about your personal ability to pay the loan. They're caring about the property. So they're, the qualification is based on the income of the property, not your ability to pay the mortgage of that house. And that's where people really got killed in the market is they had all these single family homes in 2007, 2008, two, three homes in their name, and all of a sudden a renter moves out or the economy struggles and they can't pay those four mortgages because they're there's no economies of scale. They didn't have the savings. Well, your 60 unit example, or even a 30 unit, a 20 unit, it's based on the rents that it can get. And, you know, typically during a downturn, bankers know that, that those units can pay for themselves. Of course, there's a few yeah. people paying too much for those properties that might not be the case <laughs> during the next downturn, you know, from what I see. But, but the other thing is the appraisals based on the income. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, you're not waiting for the housing market to go up and, and go insanely high to be able to make, make a good return on your investment. You simply manage it well. You have provide a good environment for renters. Rents go up or stay high, stay at a good level. And that's the value of your property, not, you know, China devaluing their current currency, dropping our economy and, you know, whatever, whatever may happen, you have a lot more control and it's a lot more stable and, and less risk. So I, so I love what you're saying there. I'm kind of curious though, you, you were around during the crash. You saw people struggle during the crash. Now that you're buying assets, what mistakes do you think people are making right now other than buying a bunch of single family homes um, that could get them in trouble during the next recession? I'm really surprised how few people are scared, to be honest with you. <laughs> and I, I think when you aren't scared, I mean, we've, this is, I have to check. This is close to the longest bull run that we've had in real estate. It is. Yeah. That really lulls people into a sense of security where you get this feeling of euphoria that it's just always going to be good. Uh huh. And where I think most people, 
outside of people just forcing money into deals, you know, they're just like, Hey, I got to put this money in a deal. It's, you know, maybe it's good. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, they aren't really looking at the numbers. They aren't stress testing it to realize what a market could do to a deal. They're they're buying on best case. Not exactly. Exactly. And maybe, maybe they're stress testing it, but it's really not to the effect that they should, you know, they should understand what's going to happen as far as rents and, Typically, you don't see a big cut in rent rates, mm-hmm. but I mean, depending on it's always market dependent. Sure. So, I, I mean, if you aren't figuring the the that you aren't figuring the vacancies, especially when you get up to a a class pr- properties, you know, a lot of those a class tenants will end up going down to B class, and it just yeah. goes down the line. So, if you're investing yeah. in a tight A class deal, that's scary to me. Or, or if you're expecting rents, part of your business model is rents to keep increasing at yeah. the pace and you can't provide the return to your investors or yourself without those increases. That's another mistake people are making. Yeah. And, and since I wasn't in real estate in 07, 08, I can't say for sure, but I think that a lot of people end up getting into really big trouble because they aren't buying the right loan product. Mm-hmm. They aren't They aren't signing up for the right loan product and they're putting themselves in a in a situation where they may not be able to refinance. And even if they're making tons of money, you know, just they have to go buy cargo shorts because they need more pockets to stuff their money in, (laughs) you know, they may be at this point, but they won't be able to refinance this property and they lose it. Yeah. You know, and, and that's going to happen in a downturn, you know, banks shrink up. They don't want to loan on stuff or their criteria is so tight to loan on it, they may not even, the government may not even be allowing them to loan money on certain types of product. Yeah. So absolutely. you may the think you have the best. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe your rates go up to maybe your, maybe cap rates go up and your value goes down and then your loan to values off and you can't refinance. Maybe you need to throw up pony up another 600,000 or yeah. maybe $2 million because of the loan to value to refinance and you can't. So I I think to me, that's the number one thing is making sure that your loans can survive a downturn and you can still make your loan payments. It's huge. Um, Because whether you're making money or not, if you can't renew your loan, it doesn't matter. Oh yeah. So I, I think that people really need to understand what happens with rates and renewing loans refinancing all that stuff they need to understand what's going what can happen in a downturn and i'm not saying it's going to happen in the next downturn i mean i think you and me know there's going to be a downturn there always is you know it goes up and it corrects coming back down so at that time you need to understand what could happen right be be prepared for it Mm -hmm. you know expect the best but plan for the worst and if you aren't planning for the worst, then I, th- I think that's where most people lost a lot in 07, 08. I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and again, this, is, this podcast is how do you recession-proof yourself? And I came to a terrible re- realization probably in the last year that I hadn't probably trained my investors, all my clients, the way I should have. So I started asking them, hey, how, how many months of a mortgage payment do you have set aside? And they all said, what do you mean? Or <laughs> most of them. And I said, well, you know, you're making great cash flow on these fourplexes or these townhomes that you bought from me. What if, what if all of, you know, it, it's not going to happen. What if all of your renters moved out today? Would that, that be tough? Oh yeah, that, that'd be terrible. Well, how many months could you make that mortgage payment? well, one or, or two, or, you know, some of them can, and some of them are very well off. But I started really calling my investors back and saying, why don't you take the cash flow for the next year, put it into a slush fund? You know, most of my clients don't need the cash flow to live on. There's a couple that do, but take some of that cash flow, put it into your bank account, your contingency fund. And that way, when, when the bank's calling and, and, and you have a couple vacancies there. It's, it's a non-issue it's planned for because those are the people, just like you said, they got in big trouble in, in 2007, 2008, cause they couldn't cover their mortgage. And guess what? Mm-hmm. Banks are running a business. 
if they see a way to make money, unfortunately, they're going to do it. And if you have a lot of equity in your home, in your duplex, your fourplex, they don't necessarily want to manage a fourplex or a 30 unit. But if they can make a great return and you're not paying your mortgage, they're going to take that back. And those were the first people that got uh, repossessed, you know, got there, got evicted and, and the banks took their properties in 2007, 2008. It wasn't the people that had were underwater. People were underwater, got to stay in their homes for two, three years without paying a mortgage. The banks didn't care. They knew they weren't yep. going to make money. My broker, uh, the owner of my company, he had a really nice home, had a ton of equity in it, was almost paid off. He missed a month. You know, the, the company was falling apart and he was trying to save it. He had to go out and get hard money loans because the bank didn't care. He'd never been late. You know, he, he was a business owner. They, they wanted that equity in his home. So if you're a banker and listening to this, sorry. <laughs> but, well, um, and, and to be fair, it's not, lending was, not, yeah, it's not all bankers, Sam. No. No. But there are bankers out there that, I mean, do act like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you may think you have the best relationship with your banker, and you might, but sometimes their hands are tied. Oh, yeah. You know? And usually it's not your banker. It's corporate. At you know, They're not making the decision. It's the people at corporate. The, the people that usually bought the loan from your banker yeah. and now are servicing that loan You know that don't know who you are, don't care. They just see a big uh, delta between what you owe and, and what they could sell it for if they kick you out. So yeah, have a contingency plan, have some money set aside, buy a property. You talked about stress testing. That's huge. I love that. You know, that's where multifamily is so much more risk adverse. You can buy properties that still cash flow if they're 10% vacant, 15% vacant, 20% vacant, or at least they still cover their own expenses. Right. I try doing that with a single family home not yeah. possible or a duplex that's not possible you get one vacancy and you're in trouble yeah well yep. so so tell me about this I, I had a really good question from my business partner he, he said sam do, does your wife support you investing and and i think it sounds i know your wife does but tell me a little bit more about that dynamic and yeah i don't i think not only does she support you but she sounds pretty excited about it yeah absolutely great question and I think that it's relevant for almost everyone that is, is listening to this. Yeah. And I, I think that, I mean, first of all, my wife, Shonda, she, she is fully on board. And she is actually helping in not only the development of growing our business, but also we manage some of our local properties. Mm-hmm. So she's also helping with that. So she's fully immersed in this and she doesn't have the background. She doesn't have the business background. She went to school to be a, to be a PTA and she loved it. She loved working with kids mm-hmm. and, but she's been a stay at home mom since we've had our kids 12 years ago. And, you know, she doesn't have that background. And I think a lot of people get really scared in investing because they're like, I don't have this background. I don't understand it. And they're nervous to make that jump. So to have her just fully committed to growing this, you know, when I got that offer to sell, you know, she was on board because she saw the potential, you know, I laid it out for her Mm -hmm. and she, I don't know. I'm trying to think how I want to word this. There's been a lot of stuff and projects that we've worked on in the past, like the fix and flips. Mm-hmm. And we didn't work very well together. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's more like the construction type of stuff, but yeah. I mean, sucks anyways. So. Yeah. And it was, and it was a little um, weird to start off and, and kind of like any type of partnership in a business, you know, you got to kind of find your place and, but we really have, jived in this business together and I get a lot of people that you know I have conversations with and they're like man I wish my wife was on board or I even so much as I wish my wife helped and I got some I got some people I know where their wives are like the opposite like they completely don't get it and yep. it's almost like they're putting up roadblocks yep and in it's hard but you can still do it you can still work around it you know and and maybe it's just something where it just hasn't clicked in your partner's head as to what's happening mm-hmm. or they maybe, maybe they don't see what's happening 10 years from now by doing this, but that's, that's the goal. You know, this is, this is a slow game. 
yeah, you can make some money real quick, but if you want to scale it on a level that I want to scale it and I know that you want to scale it on, you know, this is, this is a, a game over years, decades, right? So maybe they just don't understand what that is, but I know my wife, she's definitely on board and we're both seeing the, the fruits of all of our hard work. That's awesome, man. That's, that's really good to hear. And, and I knew that was the answer. Otherwise, I wouldn't have asked it because that was awkward. <laughs> that was a layup. <laughs> have, you, have you vent about your wife on the podcast? That would have been bad. But well, no, you, didn't Shonda, answer, you didn't answer how your wife is. She's is she awesome. On? Yeah. No, I mean, she grew up with a lot of money. So okay. I didn't. And let's see, we were in college and I was selling door to door during the summer to put both of us through college. We got a small inheritance from her grandma and her parents naturally with coming from money. They said, Oh, you need to go buy a nice house with that money and being independent and thinking for myself wasn't very popular with her family, but I, I went and bought that first flip and we moved into it and Lauren was all in and she was excited and we were, we made a ton of money. I mean, we made 70,000 on, on that first flip for us college students. That was huge. Her family definitely was not supportive, but (laughs) Even even after the seventy thousand profit, well, they were all excited about that. They well, it was pretty nasty. I mean, it was a good oh. neighborhood. It was pretty dang nasty, you know. Okay. Dog pee house, cat pee house, gross. But once we got it fixed up, they said, "Oh, you need to stay here forever." And this is a great house. And then I moved promptly moved us to a, a C location, maybe D, pretty bad area, into a duplex that we house hacked. And I remember them coming over for my birthday party. I invited everyone over. And it was just like horror, like them realizing where their daughter and and now granddaughter were living with me. And, and they were nice about it. You know, they weren't nasty. They were, they just didn't think that's a spot where we should have been living. And it wasn't great, but guess what? We made 45,000 in a year on on that flip. And, and we lived there for $300 a month because our renters paid our mortgage. Yeah. So Lauren's been amazing. It, It, she's been stressed at times, but she's always seen the vision and, and, you know, I, I think you probably saw my photo on Facebook. I posted from that duplex, we moved into another flip and we house hacked that and then turned it into a rental. And, and we just cast a check for a hundred grand. You know, we sold it a couple of years later for a hundred grand and yeah, I saw that, you know, so it's been really fun, but <laughs> funny story. We moved in this last flip and well, I call it a flip. She didn't know it was a flip. So she said, you know what? I'm done moving. We, we don't, we're not moving for five or six years at least. And I just smiled and said, Oh, okay. You know, I'd figured why fight about it. I just said, okay. And then I think without telling her, I put money down on a new build about in February said, Hey, we're moving at the end of the year. And she just rolled her eyes. Okay, whatever. (laughs) But that's the worst I get from her. She just, you know, gets frustrated. But on the rental management side, you know, she's a mom with two kids and she's out showing our rentals and helping manage those. And, and it's awesome, you know, so yeah, we get stressed out. We move a lot and she hates having to make new friends all the time, but she really wants to have a fantastic life for the family. And, and she sees the vision. And I have friends, wives who they, they're pushing them to buy million dollar homes on a $150,000, a year income. And and they have no investments, no savings, but that's what they want. They really, really yeah. want, you know, and we could have gone out and built a million dollar house and done that with our friends, but it's not what our goals are. So I'm very lucky to have a supportive wife and someone who is a partner and, and sees the vision just like Shonda and, and you guys are. So that's awesome to hear about you guys. What, what does she think about going big, big multifamily. I mean, is she comfortable with that as well? Cause, cause Lauren kind of, she it's kind of intimidating to her. Yeah. I, I mean, it is intimidating. I mean, you're talking about buying $20 million property and yeah. while a lot of these are even labeled as non-recourse, there still is some recourse, you know, the bad boy clauses. If, yeah. if you aren't acting appropriately to what you should be doing, then I mean, it can be recourse to the general partnership. So, I, I mean, it is scary, but I mean, what investment isn't scary? Right. I mean, would you put, let's say you had a million dollars. Would you go put that in the stock market? That's way oh scary. Gosh. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, I mean, it's, it's an investment. It's, it's, it does come with 
some risk. You know, right. there's, there's no investment out there without risk. So it, it is scary, but I think that, you know, I don't want to put words in Shauna's mouth, but I mean, there's really been no hesitation. I mean, she's, she was there with me through the whole process. You know, she's been, she's been seeing the process. She's been seeing the, the fruits of what we've been investing in. And she's also been there dur- during the growth and learning phases as well. You know, we've both been to uh, multiple boot camps with, of Rod Cleefs and we actually used our very first one in Chicago as our springboard to determine whether we wanted to go full multifamily. We wanted to make sure, hey, let's find out from some other people, make sure we didn't miss out um, on some kind of secret sauce on how to make this work. Or, right. But I mean, she was there. We were there making the decision together, learning together and um, networking together. So yeah, no, she is, she's on board. And I think the biggest challenge is, you know, I said, you know, she doesn't come from a um, business background. So as you, the bigger you get, the more business like it is, Yeah. You know, the more institutionalized it is. So, I mean, that's probably the biggest thing is just having more confidence in the business side of it as, as it gets bigger and bigger. And I think that's with everyone, even myself, you know, you see those bigger numbers that, you know, you realize you got to take it a little more seriously. Right. Absolutely. No, that's, and I've seen her at the events, you know, and, and that's the thing I, I would say is Rod Khalif is great. I mean, amazing training, amazing group of people like you. And, and it's been fun to hang out with people and learn. But when you jump into things, you educate yourself. Mm-hmm. You don't educate yourself indefinitely with which a lot of people do. They don't take action because they just want to get educated, but you take action and educate yourself. And, and I, I know that's what is one of the recipes that has helped me be successful is I'll jump into something, but it's very precise what I'm doing. I'm jumping in because I know it's going to be hard. It's risky, but I also have done the research, educated myself and hung around the people that can help me make the right decisions. And, you know, our mastermind is a great example of that. There's people maybe doing it the wrong way in the mastermind. A lot of people doing it the right way. And a lot of people willing to share what it takes and different things they've learned. And and that's one thing that I love about the mastermind that you and I are in is there's a lot of great people willing to share what not to do and, and what to do. So what do you think the next step is for, for you and Shonda and, and your business? Are you guys taking down a property on your own? Where are you looking or, or what is your business plan? I really like um, partnering and it just makes sense. Because none of us can be good at everything. I, right. I've yet to meet one person that's good at everything. Yep. So you have they to. Say re- they are. Be, be careful. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But you really have to realize what your weaknesses are and figure out how to fill those. Whether that's uh, if you don't want to partner, you have to figure out how to hire that done and, and really you know use that to the, to the maximum. But I find that. I'm trying to think what the saying is. If if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Yeah. Right. And, and that's really the, the motto in my head when it comes to moving forward. And that's partnering with people that not only have maybe more experience than me, but fill in my weaknesses. And so far, it's worked out really well for me. And that's where, that's where we're moving forward is as far as partnering, I'm putting to, um, putting together a lot of informative stuff for, for my investors as well. Kind of what you're doing with this podcast and what I want to help them with is that even if they don't invest with me, be cautious, you know, realize how to analyze deals or maybe it's even just realize what other options you have out there because, I mean, I know people that are really into stocks and mm-hmm. some people are good at it. <laughs> I've not had a legit conversation with someone that has been good at it for a long time. You know, I've, sure. I've known people that have really had good runs mm-hmm. and I, and I, I know that when I was in stocks, I would have a good run for a couple of years mm-hmm. and within about four to six months, that run would be completely wiped away and I'd be starting back, you know, from what, 
I put into it. And right. I think that's the majority of what people encounter with that. So I'm kind of getting off topic here, but yeah, I, I mean, similar to what you're doing with this podcast recession proof is that, you know, we're at this point, this, this tipping point, And what I feel is that I want people to be prepared mm-hmm. because I know when people are prepared, they can make better decisions, not only now, but when something bad happens. Yeah, no, that's huge. So strategic partnerships are really what you're working on now. It sounds like, yeah. And we're doing the same thing. So when I started this business, you know, actually when I got out of building fourplexes last year and, and I just said, Hey, what's the best thing for my clients? You know, what's the best thing for my investors? If a recession comes, I don't want them to be buying single family duplexes, fourplexes as much as I'd rather them buy multifamily if they can. Now I, I, I buy townhomes. I'm buying two more townhomes right now with a partner, but we're very, very conservative in our purchases. So I said, Hey, let me put together a team, you know? So I invited my friend Lyndon to, to be on this team and he doesn't have a massive background in real estate. He's a business owner, kind of like you, very successful, very smart. He's a CPA as well. And I said, I want someone that is a little bit more nerdy than I'm pretty nerdy. I, I like looking at spreadsheets, <laughs> but he's really good at looking at spreadsheets and underwriting, running the numbers on deals. And so that was a strength that he really brought to our partnership that was way better. He's way better at me at, at spreadsheets. And, and when you're evaluating a 60 door facility, you've got to be able to run the numbers and make sure you don't miss something because at the end of the day, it's all about the numbers and, and mm-hmm. what you can do with those numbers. You know, if you put $5,000 a door per door into the complex, what does that equal in a rent bump? And what does that equal for your investors? You know, the other strategic partner we've made is, is the money guy, the guy that has 30 years investing experience. He brings a balance sheet to the table. You met him at the mastermind group. He's a fantastic individual. And, and by the way, work with people that you like and that are fun to be around because yes, I'm done with people that, that aren't team players. And he's a team player. He, he has a lot of money to spend on real estate, which is great, but he's ultra conservative. So he's seen three or four crashes in the market. He's twice my age. I hope he doesn't hear this and hear me say that. <laughs> but but a really great guy. He he's conservative because he's seen the ups and downs in the market. So we have we have this powerhouse team I feel of underwriting, investor relations, which is me, scouting the deals, which is me, and then a very experienced conservative money guy. And and now we've found in a property manager with 5600 doors under management who's extremely conservative as well and aggressive with his property management, who holds his, his regionals and his property managers to a very high level of professionalism. And, and I, I think that's really important. And I love sharing information with you and with the other people in our mastermind. So you don't have to be on a team with people, but just sitting in the same room four times a year, talking on a podcast with you, I, I see huge value there. And I'm kind of curious, do you have any mistakes you'd like to share with our investors that maybe if you had the right partnership or right experience, you maybe wouldn't have made that mistake? Yeah. So you don't have to. I mean, it could be someone else. You can make it up about your friend George or something. No, I won't even make this up. You know, I'm I'm gonna be real with you. I think I think we all make mistakes and people that are that are new to investing in real estate may make the same mistake and it falls right in line with partnership, but I actually went into a partnership and trusted somebody very early when I, when I started, mm-hmm. you know, started to do buy and hold investing and I didn't do proper due diligence on this partner and it ended up really burning me on some projects. I know one of them that I lost 90 grand on, oh. I mean, you don't want to lose $90,000, but you know what? I, I just realized where I was and I know that I can make it in a different project and I don't have to make it in that same project. So it's really, even though you may find the person that fills your gap, like you said, it needs to be somebody that you jive with. Yeah. Somebody that you enjoy working with because I mean, we only get so many days on earth. Yeah. So, you know, really feeling that you can trust that person and grow with them and, that they have your back just as much as you have their back 
Mm-hmm. I, I think that that's very important. So many people starting out will trust people, but not verify that. Yep. And that's one of the biggest things that I can say, especially when you're trying to scale and partner and grow bigger. And this may not even be something that you're partnering with. Some people will spend less time really researching a potential partner than they would an employee. They'd spend way more time with an employee, (laughs) like going to a partnership and just be like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think they're good. Yeah. So even though I was very cautious with this partner, it still was to the point where I should have researched more, not only in um, done my own research instead of trusting his, but I should have researched him as well. So I think that that, that could be a big key for some people, um, whether you're active or passive, you know, really research who you're doing business with because um, that is important. No, that's huge. And the saying for businesses is be slow to hire and fast to fire. Mm-hmm. Same thing goes with partners. And, you know, I was approached by a, a number of groups to, to help them raise money and work partner on their deals. And a couple of groups didn't ask me about my background. They didn't ask me what I was doing for money. They didn't ask me for re- references, referral, I mean, anything. And then I asked them and, and they kind of just didn't get why. And, and I said, you know, if, if you don't care who you jump in the business with, that's a huge red flag for me. Yeah. And, um, I've got a group, they keep hitting me up to, to partner on deals. And I said, Hey, I'm still waiting for those references. You know, I think you're good guys, but send me a list of your investors that have worked with you and send me a list of your partners that you've worked with. And, um, am I going to Google your name and find someone you worked with that says you're a crook? You know, I, I hope not, but it's huge. And, and the other thing I realized really quickly with the last group I was with is if it's all about the money, it's going to get old fast. And that's a bad partnership. And it be, and with those guys, it was all about the money, how much I was making, even though they were making so much more than me, I was adding a ton of value. I thought, and I didn't think the money should come up yet. They always wanted to know how much I was making and see if they could pay me less. And even though they were making killing. And so if you have partners that are so worried about how much they're making versus how much you're making, it needs to be fair. You know, there needs to be something in writing. But, you know, my, my business partner, Lyndon and I, and, and then Michael, we haven't even discussed what, what we're all making. We've discussed how do we do a deal and, and make a ton of money and help each other become successful and, and financially free. That's the main topic. And that's how it is with my investors, my clients, is I'm not really worried about the fees I'm making. The money will take care of itself. But how can we add value to each other and just have a really good relationship that's mutually mutually beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. If we're going far together, that stuff doesn't matter right now. Yep. And, and I've been having quite a few conversations lately about scarcity and abundance mindset. And I think that falls right in line with it. I think the people that are worried about all those small details and how much you're making, how much they're making, I, I think that's the scarcity mindset. Yep. So having that abundance mindset, it's like, Hey, you know, I think you're doing a great job. I feel like I'm doing a good job. It seems like you think I'm doing a good job. Let's go far together. And how do we go far together? And it's not about, you know, wait, you got $10 and I only got five. I mean, that's not, that's not how it works. Yeah. Uh, But I mean, money is important, you know, making sure that everything is fair, but in reality, it's everything else that comes along with it. Yeah. That's huge. That's absolutely important. Well, it sounds like that was a, an expensive lesson for you, 90 grand hurts. <laughs> well, I will say, I wanted to ask you though, can Shonda laugh about it? Did she say, I told you so? She- and that was, it was a very contentious purchase. Even from the beginning, I, it was going to be one of those D-class properties to to bring around that, like kind of what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. I think now we can laugh about it. It was a very rough time. That was a long journey we went on. I kept every decision I made. I felt like I was making the right decision, uh-huh. but it, it just kept going and, and, you know, problem after problem after problem, even after, even though I was making the right decision, you know, financially and investment wise, it just, it just could never, you know, it's kind of like you see those funny videos where someone, the top of their body's going faster than their feet and they, their feet can't catch up with their body. I mean, that's right. kind of what's, you know, my feet could not catch up with, with this property. So 
I will say the advantages to real estate, I was able to take so much of that losses against my other income. Uh-huh. And I actually calculated out, I only lost about 20 grand when it comes uh-huh. to all the benefits of, you know, depreciation and the expense, the taxes that I wouldn't pay on my other profit. So, I mean, 20 grand isn't all that bad. It's better than 90. Is a lot better than 90. <laughs> well, that's the way I'd swing it to your wife, you know, next, next time she brings it up. Yeah. And, th- and that was our decision. I mean, that's what it came down to is like, you know, when we realized, hey, we just can't catch up to this and we couldn't find the right people to help us catch up to that. It was just, it was just kind of a realization of, okay, this is in reality, this is really what we would lose. Mm-hmm. It's not that much. Let's make up that $20,000 in the next deal. And, you know, I, I look yeah. at, I spent time on another deal where I made almost 300 grand in a year. Nice. And I mean, on a 10 plex. So, I mean, you, you just look at that. I mean, 20 grand was nothing compared to what I've made on the other properties. So, well, and, and the money you'll make by partnering with the right people and the lessons you've learned. So I absolutely never want to lose money, but sometimes that's the education you pay for. Yeah. Well, Adam, we're about out of time and, and I've got to run to my next appointment. I'm sure you've got to get okay. back to working with investors and laying your patio. Yeah. Right. How can our listeners reach out to you? What do you have going on that they can click on, go to email you. What's the best way to reach reach you and find out what you're doing? Yeah, so my company is Welkin Equity. That's W-E-L-K-I-N. So welkinequity.com, you can hit me up there. Or I'm on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Uh, I try to spend a good amount of time on all those. I don't, I don't spend too much time on Instagram. But, you know, reach out to me. Maybe you want to get on my email list. I send out emails about, you know, what I'm up to. And uh, yeah, I have a couple deals possibly in the work, which is great. So I'm really looking forward to those, but you know how the hot market goes. So we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> and, and tell everyone where you're from and, and where you're looking to do business as far as multifamily goes. Absolutely. So I am in Northeast Indiana, Fort Wayne, Indiana. You probably don't have many Fort Wayne, Indiana investors or investors on your podcast. Nope. I will invest in pretty much the Midwest or some very hot markets that are have been proven to be recession proof or recession resistant. I'm kind of staying away from the east and the west coast unless it's a really slamming deal. Good choice. But uh, pretty much the pretty much the U.S. Basically, you just follow jobs like I do, right? If there's job growth, yeah, absolutely. Economy, that's what you so, just just looking at the market data and see if it seeing if it makes sense and if it can follow along with your podcast and be recession proof. 